he says, you know, but it ain't easy with that some bitch Reagan in the White House, <laughs> and you know, and it's uh-huh. yeah, it's like yeah, you're you're right. I mean, Reagan is not helping. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Cinema Ball. It's the movie-based contest that's a lot like the game Arnold Schwarzenegger is forced to play in The Running Man, only without the boss fight against Jesse Ventura. It's showtime. I'm Carolyn Pettit, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and opponent, Ebony Astor. Hey, Ebony. Hey, how do you do, fellow co-host? This is episode 12, the fourth episode of the second round. Cinema Ball is a ridiculous excuse for Ebony and I to talk about movies. In this round, I'm playing defense, trying to prevent Ebony from reaching her goal film, the 1985 teen power ballad in movie form, The Legend of Billie Jean. She was a fugitive to the police. A sensation to the media. And a symbol of courage to young people everywhere to fight for what's right. Where is she? Everywhere. The Legend of Billie Jean, directed by Matthew Robbins, featuring Pat Benatar's hit song, Invincible, rated PG-13. At the end of last week's episode on L.A. Story, Ebony honed in on actor Sam McMurray, following him east from that film's Southern California setting to the deserts of the Coen Brothers' 1987 comedy, Raising Arizona. At the end of this episode, you'll find out whether I've hitched my fortunes to Nicolas Cage, Holly Hunter, or some other member of Raising Arizona's impressive cast and crew. But for now, let's get into it. Ebony, start us off here. Absolutely. So let me start off by saying that I first saw this film in high school in an English class. Uh, Mr. Anderson, uh, teacher of AP English, showed it to us. It was a film that he absolutely loved and could not stop talking about. It was not linked to anything that we were reading in the class. I don't think we discussed it afterwards, but for two periods, we watched Raising Arizona. So that's, that was my introduction. He probably to the just, you know, teachers sometimes just, they need a little, they don't have a, you know, they, they don't want to do the work of coming up with yeah. a lesson plan. It's just like, hey, let's have a movie, um, you know, movie day. Oh yeah, I was, we were absolutely here for it. And I remember, you know, everybody in class loving it. And we felt so grown up because it felt like, I mean, yeah. it's it's not the sort of film that we were used to seeing um, at that age. And depending upon where you grew up and what kind of uh, films you have access to, I grew up in a, you know, pretty small, comparatively small town in Wyoming. It wasn't like we were getting a lot of independent films <laughs> at that point. So it felt like, wow, this is the kind of shit that's out there. So, hey, you know, it may have been an excuse for him just to, you know, lean back in his chair and take a quick nap for 50 minutes mm. a day. I'm cool with that. It introduced me to something amazing, and that is the work of the Coen brothers. So yeah, Raising Arizona comes out in 1987. It is the second feature film from the Coen brothers um, after Blood Simple, and they deliberately wanted to do something with a bit of a lighter tone uh-huh. after Blood Simple. The plot of Raising Arizona is is pretty simple with all kinds of you know callbacks to kind of iconic um Uh, genre films like heist films and and stuff like that but it's essentially about like this feckless recidivist convenience store thief named H.I. McDonough who meets 
woos and then marries a cop named Ed, full name Ed Weena, um, in suburban Tempe, Arizona. Uh, Hi and Ed struggle to conceive, and then the film rapidly kind of, you know, surrenders to this delirium dream state uh, once they discover that they they cannot conceive. Um, And so they decide to steal a baby from local furniture scion Nathan, Arizona, whose wife has just given birth to quintuplets and has, quote, more than she can handle. So the rest of the film was about them trying to uh, prevent other people from learning where they got this baby and then dealing with some of High's friends who have broken out of prison. Uh, but the, the, the plot, such as it is, of the movie is secondary to the amazing characters that we get in this film. Um, a, a character like H.I. McDonough, played by the incomparable Nicolas Cage, yeah. who in 1987 is probably best known for uh, having played uh, in Valley Girl uh, in 1983, you know? Yeah, and I want to say, you know, for because a lot of folks today, I think Nicolas Cage now has a reputation, at least among a lot of people, of being kind of uh, over-the-top kind of bad or goofy actor yeah like a parody of himself a parody of himself yeah but but uh, so i think a lot of people who you know younger people who may watch this film may not know that there was a time and this film is certainly i think still in that or maybe even precedes that time when nicholas cage was kind of considered legitimately like a like a great actor you know um certainly like leading up to like leaving Las Vegas uh, and stuff like that, and I, uh, I definitely think that he's he's phenomenal in this film. Uh, but I, I also want to just mention real quick that as I was doing just a bit of research on this movie, like the Wikipedia page, uh, no says um, so. There was some tension between Nicolas Cage and the Coens uh, on set. Um, uh, it's uh, according to, again, Wikipedia, for, take it for what it's worth. When Nicolas Cage arrived on set and at various points during production, Cage offered suggestions to the Coen brothers, which they ignored. Cage said that uh, Joel and Ethan have a very strong vision and I've learned how difficult it is to accept another artist's vision. They have an autocratic nature. And so part of me feels like, well, maybe the reason, part of the reason Nicolas Cage is so great in this film is that the Coen brothers were kind of like reining in, right. you know, some of his his tendencies toward being like larger than life, right? So that they, so that we get just the right sort of, it's still outside, an outsized performance. I mean, it's, it's of a pace with the tone of the film around mm-hmm. it, which is kind of cartoonish and, um, you know, but it is, it doesn't, uh, so it's consistent with that rather than like overshadowing it or seeing seeming bigger even than what the film is going for. Yeah, and I, I love that you use the term cartoonish because I think that is so apt for Nicolas Cage as high in this movie. You know, he's this tall, lanky figure whose body moves in these very like ways that almost seem to defy physics sometimes with this kind of flapping arms and his hair that just gets higher and higher as he, you know, just descends further and further. Uh, into this kind of ludicrous situation in which he and Ed have found themselves. And it absolutely, um, in, in many ways, feels like a kind of old Warner Brothers cartoon. Yeah. You know, with the, um, uh, with the music 
the kind of, you know, bouncy music that plays behind certain scenes and the way he, you know, runs down streets and everything. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, yeah. he, he is a living cartoon. Yeah. But I do think you're right that, that it is a testament to um, the way the, the Coen brothers, who are known for sort of sculpting every single element uh, of, a, of a piece, you know, of a, of a movie. When we talk about directors and writers who are kind of known for being, you know, auteurs, right? For having like a signature style. We kind of know what a Coen Brothers movie is like mm-hmm. um, with, the, with the black humor, um, with the kind of, you know, insistence on a peculiarly, you know, American sense of, of place and identity um, that's, you know, looked through kind of a funhouse mirror, et cetera. But yeah, I think, you know, when Nicolas Cage goes off the rails and doesn't have a director who is willing to to rein him in, he can you know exceed the bounds of a film and work against it. Um, but what he does so well, like the Nicolas Cage-ish of him, you know, works with this film and propels it. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a perfectly in in line with what this film is going for. It gives it that you know, as you say, he has a great kind of physicality to him there's a there's a scene uh or a shot rather a shot in which uh somebody kind of i think strikes nicholas cage strikes high like across the face and and nicholas cage like spins to the camera in a way that's very much like like exactly like something out of a looney tunes cartoon and it just works so well um which but interestingly like for all of its uh sort of uh over-the-top cartoonish tendencies and its desire to obviously create this kind of like American uh, uh, fable of sorts is still very much rooted, interestingly, in the the time period in which it was created. Um, There's a early on in a voiceover, uh, uh, High says something about like, you know, sort of maybe trying to get on the straight and narrow and live a, live a more, you know, decent life or, uh, but, Mm -hmm. but he says, um, he says, you know, but it ain't easy with that some bitch Reagan in the White House, <laughs> and, you know. And it's uh-huh. yeah, it's like yeah, you're you're right. I mean, Reagan is not helping the you know the poor people, the poor people, and uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I just love that it's that it's cognizant too of the of the time period in which yeah. it's in which it's yeah, absolutely. And yet, you know, nevertheless, um, has that kind of dreamy, timeless quality. So even at those moments, you know, that kind of anchor the film in time, like the mention of Reagan, High occupies a social class and a kind of cultural milieu in which that kind of you know, complaint is is commonplace. No matter who's in the absolutely. White House, no matter who's uh, you know, right. Absolutely. So there are absolutely people who are like, "That's some bitch oh, Obama. 100%. That's some bitch Trump." It's always, Whatever, it's always right? somebody. You yeah, know? I mean, like it, it's that. Yeah, it's double sided because obviously, yes, the politicians are, are not in power, are not uh, overly concerned by any stretch with the the struggles of uh, of poor Americans. But there's also, yes, yeah, so high is definitely of a particular sort of archetype that it's it's all it's kind of always somebody else's fault or always somebody else's problem yeah you know like the the little guy fighting against yeah. you know the 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 wiles of the you know the system the man yeah, yeah, yeah. um you know and i do think that you know again talking about like this this timeless quality of the film the way that you know various characters are outfitted 
and you know um, costumes that are straight out of like Ozzy and Harriet, mm -hmm. right? It ain't Ozzy and Harriet. That look very 50s, um, the kind of 70s decor right. in a lot of places contribute to that sense that this could be happening anytime, not necessarily any when, although I think it's important, and maybe we'll talk about this later, that you know, the, the version of America that occupies, you know, such an, uh, a large place and in, in high sense of self is, you know, like America is this kind of dream state, literally at the end, mm -hmm. when he talks about this dream vision he has about, you know, the children and grandchildren that he and Ed, you know, might have that they're surrounded by and this like sort of, you know, um, you know, utopian domestic space at a, you know, Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, he said he talks about like, you know, just the wonderful feeling that he felt and how perfect it was. And then says, you know, talks about it being yours. And he says, but I don't know. Maybe it was. Yeah. Utah. Yeah. Um, I, to go back, I want to talk, go back to your, your comment about the sort of Ozzy and Harriet style fashions. And I think in mm -hmm. particular, like maybe the character who exemplifies that the most is played by Francis McDormand as the, yeah. the wife of, um, of, of High's sort of boss slash obnoxious Glenn. pal Glenn. Um, and, and so Francis McDormand, you know, they, the High and Ed have just quote unquote had this baby, or at least they're trying to kind of convince <laughs> folks that they just had this baby and um and you know so the francis mcdormand character who's like they have how many kids do you know that glenn and uh and her have i don't know but mm -hmm. you know she is just like well do you you know do you have the have you gotten them have you gotten him the dip tet uh have you mm -hmm. created like a bank account for him already like with the you know money for his university and for and for like this you know these uh, this other thing and it's like and and i just feel so much kind of sympathy in a way for high in that moment as somebody who's like uh feels so out of sorts as an adult among other adults who seem to have everything like there's just a way that things are done they have it together and like there's a way that things are done yeah. and, and everybody should know it and high doesn't know it and if he doesn't know it it's you know it's because he's a he's a hopeless fuck up and like well of course he's gonna just keep kind of you know robbing convenience stores or whatever because he's not cut out for like you know, for, for this life, like he just doesn't, he's never been, uh, initiated into that world. And yet he's still sort of expected to just n know all of these things and be on top of all of these things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we see high, <laughs> like we, we are introduced to this character, you know, um, as he goes through several iterations of being, um, fingerprinted and photographed prior to, you know, entering prison multiple times, right? Like this is a man who has literally kind of grown up and grown into uh, whatever version of adulthood he has, you know, through crime, but like this kind of like low rent, you know, just like dollar general kind of robbery that he's not even particularly good at. Um, and so there's this vision of him that he has of himself as this kind of like larger than life outlaw character that is completely at odds with the reality of who he is. And yet the film does grant him, you know, a certain measure of 
you know, kind of, you know, largeness of spirit. He's very much like the kind of bard or prophet mm. um, mm-hmm. figure, right? He's, he speaks in the, you know, very kind of grandiose style. And he makes these kind of like grand romantic gestures that are, you know, funny, yeah. but they're also, you know, touching and believable. And so when, uh, when Hi and Ed are talking one of the many times she's, uh, fingerprinting him and she's crying and she reveals that her her fiance her, her fiance fi- her, fi- has, her fiance <laughs> that's right her fiance has has left yeah. her like you know hi just you know it's like you tell him that he's a son of a bitch and that i will come talk to him or whatever and and we love the kind of you know like romantic hero that he is in that moment at the same time that he's being yeah. you know like you know comedy yanked off stage yeah, to go to exactly. prison. Exactly. And I, you know, I hadn't thought of this before, but um, in the sense of the, 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 the role that high serves as like both as the narrator of this story and the kind of distinctly sort of American uh, take on the, the bard slash prophet. Um, I think we, we sort of see that again later in the Coen brothers uh, filmography with like Sam Elliott, in a sense, as the narrator of the big yeah. Lebowski, right? That the, like imparting mm-hmm. wisdom through this or trying to kind of impart some 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 wisdom through this uh this fable or this narrative that uh that is being told yeah yeah and so you know like it, obviously there are those classical antecedents for that but uh also uh folks who study the coen brothers films and you know have even kind of a passing familiarity with um with mid-century american literature talk about um, the echoes of Flannery O'Connor mm-hmm. and William Faulkner in their work. These these key characters who are, if not the moral center, then certainly the kind of you know moral explicator and the lens through which we can understand the larger happenings. Um, and so the fact that it's in this film a character like Hi, you know, who <laughs> who decides on the spur of the moment while riding home with his wife and this new baby they've stolen to rob some huggies and just like, you know, is running around town being chased by cops with a full pair of pantyhose on his Uh head. The fact that that's the character uh, through which we're going to understand what's happening is is absolutely perfect. Yeah, yeah. One of the um, things that I also want to talk about, because, you know, we've spent some time talking about... uh, high and his kind of inflated sense of self that the that the movie kind of you know uh puts forward but then also you know undercuts um really masterfully but also just the other versions uh of men Mm, we get mm. this this movie doesn't have a lot of patience for um the kind of self-important and absurd masculinity as represented by anyone in this film. Some people are treated more gently than others, you know, like uh, Nathan Arizona yeah. at, at the end of the film, yeah. right? But when you think about, like, uh, Glenn, played by Sam McBury, the, the guy who, you know, was our link to this film, um, and his kind of, like, it's just gross yeah. Yeah. virility, mm-hmm. you know? Um middle management yeah. you know it, yeah and and then gail and and Avell snow it's like none of these are men that are worth a piece of anything right yeah i mean the john goodman uh you know character he very much um sort of uh, tries to cajole and manipulate high through masculinity and through you know these notions mm-hmm. of of uh 
uh, of, uh, well, who wears the pants in this family kind of thing. Because right. whenever Ed, you know, makes her very reasonable kind of requests or, <laughs> you know, that, that these two, you know, men who have just escaped from prison and are, are kind of obnoxious and are kind of, you know, occupying the space as if they own it and as if they can just do with it as they will, you know, that they kind of move along uh that you know the, what the response uh, on their part is to appeal to to highs like um you know notions of being the the man of the family and like oh she's got you on a tight on a tight leash doesn't she like that kind of garbage yeah 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 and you know i mean early in the film uh when they're when high's still in prison with the snow's brothers you know and <laughs> they're in the group therapy session and the therapist is saying like you know you guys, we really need to figure out what's preventing you from, you know, doing the sorts of things that you need to do as an adult man. And yeah, his his version of that is also pretty ludicrous and, and cliche. But, you know, Gail's understanding of who he is, is is so tied to this backwards version of like, you know, kind of a, um, a manly man. He talks about how sometimes your career has to come before family. Uh, when the career he's talking about is being a robber, yeah. is being a thief, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that the film, like, at the end, uh, when or near the end, when Ed and Hi are talking in the car and it's sort of borne down upon them the, the absolute mess that's been created after they stole the baby and, and you know, Hi's allowing Gail and Evel to... Uh, kind of steer him wrong once again, you know, Ed is asking him about how he sees these things playing out, what he's going to do. Um, and she's like, you know, what is, what kind of person would that be? And, or what does that leave we leave me with? And high says that leaves, you know, with a man, with a man for, for a husband. husband. Yeah. You know? And she says that ain't no answer. Yeah. And it absolutely is true. That ain't no yeah, answer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's also that interesting moment too, where Glenn, uh, the source of the, what becomes the the real source of conflict between Glenn and High is that Glenn uh, <laughs> sort of proposes uh, that they that they uh, do some wife swapping. That they're you know we're swingers, man. I'm talking open marriage. I'm talking wife swapping. <laughs> um, and you know High's reaction to this immediately is to lay Glenn out. You know, it's just like uh, you know punch him in the face. And it's just this interesting um, you know sort of conflict or clash between these two sort of uh, competing ideas of what uh, a family, uh, you know, or relationship should, should look like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, not that the version we see, you know, at least briefly with the Arizona uh, family with their quintuplets that are more than light and handle. Yeah. Um, is, is is some idealized version either. I mean, they're, they're, the fact that they are kind of left to themselves up there, Harry, Gary, Larry, Barry, and Nathan, and Nathan Jr., Jr. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, this film is, I, I don't want to say whimsical, but it does have such a light touch, despite some of the occasionally horrifying moments in it, you know? So like Gail and Avell bursting through that sewer pipe. Right. To to break out of prison. The absolutely like biblically apocalyptic figure of Leonard Smalls. Um, 
shoot using a shotgun to shoot geckos off rocks mm-hmm. you know it's just it's just amazing how like how deftly this this film sort of walks the line between um these these grand moments these occasionally horrifying moments and then immediately sort of lets the air out of the balloon um with something funny. I mean I will say like I have a lot of like, I say this a lot on this show I have a lot of admiration for this film and I certainly enjoy it mm-hmm. in in fits and starts uh, I think I do come down on the side of feeling like it's a little uh it, it, well it, it, it's a little overly sort of self-conscious and kind of controlled. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and I, you know, like, I think the Coen brothers were so meticulous, like so meticulous in their, in their vision for this film that at times it, it, it feels, uh, yeah, a, to me as a viewer, a little suffocating. Um, like they're mm-hmm. not letting just a little bit of real life kind of uh, energy uh, seep into it and I guess I just wanted it to uh, to relax a, a little bit at times well there is the I mean the film is you know it's kind of defined by its manic pace yeah. right like there's 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 very few kind of quiet moments there are a few and they are beautiful you know scenes where like Hi and Ed are watching that the sunset know, the painted Arizona so sunset yeah right yeah you know those those kind of things are absolutely but there are very few quiet moments um and there's there's not a single character in this film who's not kind of outlined you know with a very bold brush the the you know the budget i think for this film they were able to secure kind of just uh uh you know like five million dollars in funding which is uh you know a, a certainly a limited uh, amount of money with which to make a film like this and um so again uh you know this is from wikipedia but uh, uh joel cohen according to the wikipedia page like noted that you know um to main to Quote, to maintain maximum from that money, the movie has to be meticulously prepared. So I'm, you know, I'm sure everything was like storyboarded out just to like the finest detail and everything. And, um, and I mean, the result is, is, is fascinating. It's full of the kind of cinematic references and callbacks and, you know, shows an awareness for cinematic history and everything. And, um, and I admire the craft of it. Um, though, yeah, at times I feel like it, it, it does feel uh, for me as a viewer kind of overly overly controlled and I think that for me you know I probably prefer um, something I feel like say you know with the big Lebowski some years later they you know the Coen brothers got to a place where maybe they they felt like they could while still like a film of great craft and 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 thoughtfulness you know they felt like they could maybe relax a little bit um uh you know I I mean, it's just an interesting part of the evolution of the Cone. Like as you said, this is their second film, still very early, and yeah. So, um, but it's interesting to, to see how carefully they 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 planned out this film. Obviously, wanting each each scene to produce like a a, a very specific um, effect, right? Yeah, yeah. What is what is your favorite Coen Brothers? Do you have a favorite Coen Brothers? I'm film? not like the biggest Coen Brothers enthusiast. I mean, I haven't seen. There's like mm-hmm. a lot of Coen Brothers films I haven't seen. It's not like I automatically seek out a you know a Coen Brothers film. So, I mean, mm-hmm. of the ones that I've seen, um, it's probably Fargo. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, 
Uh, yeah, but I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm curious, like, I keep feeling like, oh, I need to watch more of the Coen Brothers, uh, filmography. You know, I do want to see, uh, Hail Caesar, which, um, Mm -hmm. is obviously, it's such a film about Hollywood, and I remember there were conversations about it around the time of its release of how it, it perpetuates a very, you know, white, uh, uh, notion of Hollywood history, but I think it could also, Mm -hmm. within the you know, nonetheless, still be a very kind of amusing and uh, uh, smart and enjoyable film. So, yeah, I do want to see that. But, yeah, I mean, um, I would not classify myself as like one of the like a big Coen Brothers enthusiast um, myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I dip in and out of their filmography. I'm, I'm never upset sure. uh, to watch a, a Coen Brothers film. But there are some that, you know, while I know I will see them eventually, I'm in no particular rush to get there. Um, the ones that I have seen and love, I really uh-huh, love, uh-huh. though. Um, so, yeah, Blood Simple, Fargo, as you say, Big Lebowski, um, definitely. But, yeah, Raising Arizona, maybe because it was my first Coen Brothers film. And as I said, there was something so revelatory to me about this film. You know, it's just, it's a, what is it, like 90 minutes long yeah. or something? I just, I had no idea that there were films. And this tells you everything about the kind of blinkered existence I had as a youth, you know? <laughs> but I just had no idea that art like this was yeah. was being produced um, and that you could get it out there. That there was this, this sounds so corny, but I guess I just didn't realize as a, you know, adolescent that there was a space for kind of weird art. yeah. You know, and that was so freeing to me. Yeah. Um, such that when I started working um, in high school in the public library, and one of the perks of working there was that uh, you could. So this is back in the day when you know they had video cassettes. You could um, you could rent as many videos as you wanted at a time. Whereas like you know the regular plebes, the civilians yeah. could only check out two at a time. And I think it cost like a couple of bucks to rent them. We got them for free. You could take as many as as you wanted. It was absolutely the influence of works like the Coen Brothers that influenced much of my future development in terms of media watching because I suddenly was ravenous to find out what else was out there. Just learning that it wasn't, you know, uh, all mainstream blockbusters, which, you know, it's not like my parents hid this stuff from me. But as I said, I grew up in a place where there weren't, I didn't have access to a lot of like art house films or independent films. Um, You know, I was young enough yet that, you know, although I spent a lot of time in libraries, you know, reading whatever I could get my hands on. There was something about TV and movies that I just believed to my soul had to be fairly mainstream and conventional. Mm-hmm. And so seeing something like this kind of just blew my wig off. I can totally understand that. I think I was, I had already been exposed to some kind of art cinema, you know, before mm-hmm. uh, I, before I encountered Raising Arizona. But if, if it had, it absolutely would have been uh, revelatory for me as well. Like there is, that totally could have happened. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so excited for films like, um, sorry to bother you. Yes. Excuse me. Because in its embrace of a specifically black surrealist, you know, kind of weird tone. I'm, I'm so excited for people today to have access to that same Mm -hmm. moment of revelation. Mm -hmm. Um, but not be hamstrung by the notion that like 
okay, you can make weird stuff, but that really, it's mainly white people yeah. who get to make the weird stuff and kind of take chances, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so it, I, I love that. I love that we're seeing more and more stuff um, that doesn't, I mean, yeah, I love the Coen brothers, but they're, there are Cohen brothers. Uh, there are people making all kinds of cool stuff that's, you know, um, uh, kind of left of center who aren't, you know, yeah. middle-aged white, yeah, white, yeah, privileged white guys from Minnesota. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one thing that I think for me is particularly interesting about the 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 kind of world that this film creates um, is uh, is the character of of Leonard Smalls and who, who Mm -hmm. constantly, you know, reminds me of, um, uh, of Randall flag, the kind of walk, the walk and dude, the manifestation of evil from Stephen King's the stand. Um, Uh you know, so here, here we have Leonard Smalls who, you know, the, 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 the biker of the apocalypse or whatever, you know, he rides down the road and leaves just a trail of flame from his bike. And, and I mean, these images are obviously they're, they're somewhat, comical in the context of this film and yet and yet there is almost like a part of me that wants a like a a a post-apocalyptic like film (laughs) in which leonard smalls like is the kind of manifestation of evil like in a that takes that kind of seriously or at face value right um i mean Mm -hmm. he's just he he seems to be in some ways to be, to emerge from High's guilt about uh, stealing yeah. uh, Nathan Junior right and so it's as he's like tossing and turning at night you know then something wicked this way comes right like he like mm-hmm. out of his own guilt and 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 anxiety and everything is born this figure who is hunting him down and um you know and, and I mean it's just like. There's a great scene where, yeah, where Leonard Smalls um, stops at Nathan Arizona's and they have this kind of tense <laughs> conversation. conversation, you know, you know, and, and Leonard is like, uh, you know, I'm not a customer. I'm a I'm a manhunter. And it's like mm-hmm. and it's again, it's like it's comical within this film because this film is comical. But there's also part of me that's like, wow, this dude is like badass. I'm like, I want, a fi- I want yeah. this guy, like a figure like this in like an actual kind of film where, oh, where he, they are a threat, like in a, in a, in a genuine way. Right. Um, I just think he's so iconic. Yeah. And it, well, I mean, and Leonard Smalls, you know, represents the one real source of menace in this film. Like, no matter how badass Gail and Evel think they are. Oh, yeah. Uh, they are, are toddlers compared yeah. to Leonard Smalls. And in fact, when he, you know, says, you know, listen, you can either hire me to find this kid for you or I'm going to find the kid anyway yeah. and I'm going to sell it on the black market. Yeah. You know, suddenly things start to feel a bit more real. It's not just this kind of zany, hijink, madcap adventure, you know, that we're seeing. It's like, oh, yeah. Like, this is actually kind of horrifying. Yeah, Leonard Smalls, in some ways, is the way he is because he wasn't loved as a child, right? <laughs> right. Um, and, to go, you know, to go back to how how um, the, the the brothers are these toddler figures, like, when they break out of prison and they emerge from the earth, like, they are just mm-hmm. screaming constantly, obviously, yeah. like... The metaphor, it's its almost like heavy-handed. Like, okay, we get it. They're sort of being born into the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yeah. <laughs> I just, Leonard Smalls, just that kind of like elemental figure yeah. 
riding his bike everywhere, like literally into buildings, up walls, you know, and into buildings. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, with his, his, uh, like fur boots, you know, and, and the like wildly overgrown beard. Like he is like something from the earth. Like he's been yeah. conjured, um, in a way that in a way, like a, a, the, the film as a whole has been conjured. It's almost like a, a diorama. And, you know, uh, I, I love the way that the, the film's title works on that level. Yeah. Raising Arizona, you know, yeah. um, like referencing the kind of calling forth or a conjuring yeah. of the idea of Arizona and the West and America and these and these kind of American archetypes right. um, and, and film archetypes. Yeah, I mean, I, like I, th- I see in, in Leonard Smalls this kind of, Tolkien, like an almost Tolkien-esque manifestation of evil. He's kind of like a modern, yeah. you know, Nazgul or something. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, with The Stand, Stephen King was on some level consciously trying to take that kind of myth uh, and and transplant it to, you know, contemporary, you know, America. And so, I don't know. It sort of makes sense then that Leonard Smalls sort of, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a fun kind of playful way seems kind of linked to that same uh that same tradition of characters yeah yeah absolutely do you have anything else you want to say about this film before we head into our fab and furious five ebony Uh, no i am ready for to deliver my fab five okay so we're going to wrap up our discussion of raising arizona with a round of fab five in which we run down five moments or details about the movie that we loved or hated ebony what you got all right so the the things that i loved um, we're kind of evenly split between very small things um, and and kind of larger thematic things. So number one, I loved the mirroring of the two shots that we get when High is <laughs> he's sort of you know overwhelmed by the number of babies and kind of juggling babies when he's first kind of uh, trying to steal Nathan Jr. and one is getting away from him under the crib and he kind of has to reach down and pull it back by its leg and then that's mirrored when he is under the truck um, trying to get away from Leonard Smalls um, and is doing his own kind of baby crawl. I love I love that mirroring. I loved that um, the, the factory that uh, or the uh, fact the plant that high works in the people wear patches that say Hudsucker Industries. Oh, I did. Uh, I totally... love that shout out to Hudsucker Proxy. Although this film preceded Hudsucker Proxy, so they would yeah. have been establishing like they probably had an idea for something called the Hudsucker mm-hmm. Corporation, but hadn't brought it into into yeah. realization yet. So it's like a pre shout out to Hudsucker yeah, Proxy. Yeah, yeah. Um. Again, I, I loved the way that uh, this film reminded me of some of the best uh, Flannery O'Connor short stories um, and the just effortless way that dialogue emerges from some of these people um, in ways that are both affected and nevertheless intensely real. Um, so if anything, this is a shout out to people to, to go read some Flannery O'Connor. Do yourself a favor. Number four, 
the scene <laughs> where Hyde's in prison listening to his cellmate talk about what they ate when he was a kid. Uh-huh. When we had no meat, we ate fowl. When we had no fowl, we ate fish. When we had no fish, we ate crawdad. <laughs> and just yep. <laughs> Hyde's like growing irritation and frustration. Uh, absolutely just amazing. Um, and then, yeah, just, you know, that that line that we mentioned before where you know uh during that conversation in the car high and ed are talking and and ed says where does that leave us and high says it leaves you with a man for a husband and she says that ain't no answer ah i just love it yeah yeah uh cool so uh all right uh my five let's see for one um uh one of my five is the there's a the the book uh, I for, I forget the exact title, but it's a it's a Doctor Spock book about like how to raise a, a baby that mm-hmm. it, it, it is sort of carried through. You know, it, when they steal Nathan Junior, um, High and Ed take the book with them as you know, as a kind of totem. I think of their genuine desire to be like good parents, and then and then later when uh, the the brothers take Nathan uh, Jr. They also take the book with them, you know? And and so the book becomes, and by the end of the film, the book is this like burnt, tattered, you know, thing. Uh-huh. And yet it, 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 it is definitely still, it's this, yeah, just this like, it serves as kind of talisman of people's desires to, for all of their own flaws and failures, you know, in themselves that they've uh, had in their lives up to this point. Like there is some part of them that it, that is, um, th- that desires to be like a genuinely good kind of parent mm-hmm. to to Nathan Junior. Um, yeah, I love the uh, the late title card. The, the title card in this film comes about eleven, you know, ten eleven minutes in, mm-hmm. um, such that like um, like a whole span of years is covered in the heavily narrated like um, ten minute or so kind of prologue to the film, where High is like in prison and, and speaks to the parole board and then he's out of prison <laughs> and he's back in prison again. And, and I, it's, it seemed to me in some way that, um, that the, the, the film is able to allow that time to flow by so quickly in part because high doesn't really care about anything yet. He doesn't really care about mm-hmm. himself or his own life. And there's like a line during that prologue where, you know, when he's back in prison for like the third time or something where he's like missing Ed and he says something like, you know, and then I said, you know, I began to feel the pain of imprisonment. And it's like, because up until Mm -hmm. that point, like there was nothing on the outside world really that he cared about that he wanted. And now suddenly there is. And that's when time starts to kind of actually have weight for him. Right. Mm -hmm. I love just the space that high occupies as a character who is, such a such a goof you know goofball fuck up um but is also like very uh you know in in his own way very like thoughtful and well spoken right <laughs> like he says he says to ed at one point when he's like i think uh, about to maybe go uh return to his life of crime or maybe he's already done that i don't know but he says to her like um I don't have the strength of character to raise up a family in the manner befitting a responsible adult. Right. <laughs> like instead of just saying like, I'm, I'm just not cut out to be a good dad or I don't think, you know, whatever, uh-huh. like, you know, he's, he says it in this very kind of, 
and that's that's indicative of how he communicates throughout the film in a lot of ways as with yeah. a, is with a very a kind of formality that is that um uh, yeah it, it that kind of puts high in this in this interesting space of being mm-hmm. um yeah obviously like very smart you know um and yet kind of comfortably reside like letting himself reside in a in a place of uh, of less uh you know uh, uh n- not not living up maybe to his own kind of potential in some ways um mm-hmm. and i already talked you know about just leonard smalls as a character definitely one of the highlights of this film for me all the imagery surrounding leonard smalls you know um and the performance i think is just uh is just so captivating in those you know moments like when he's uh, speaking to nathan arizona and finally uh, number 5 for me is the whole epilogue for me uh, is where for me the film's kind of over what I find to be its over overly controlled nature kind mm-hmm. of falls away and it 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 uh, finds a, a more kind of sincere place as it suggests that high and ed can find redemption um and uh it there's something, you know, I mean, you know, you may sucker for, again, like sincerity and warmth and stuff like that. Like there's uh, this that whole dream uh, of, of a future in which um, Hi and Ed have children and they're much old. They're much older and the adult children come to visit. And we hear one of like his adult daughters. We hear her say we just hear her say dad. And it's this moment of like power because it, it suggests this. That, that they that Ed and High have been loving parents who have brought you know loving people into the world and High mm-hmm. you know says uh, you know me and Ed we can be good too um, and it, you know it reminds me a lot of there's a there's um a great scene toward the end of uh, Spike Lee's film Twenty Fifth Hour in which the mm-hmm. Edward Norton character is about to kind of go to prison. Uh, to face this sentence and he has this whole kind of flash forward imagining himself of like a family that he and his girlfriend you know ostensibly you know in this in this future this vision of the future played by rosario dawson have had and it shows them as older people with their family gathering and it's it's this thing that you know in that film it's it's very tragic because it because it doesn't happen we know that it doesn't Mm -hmm. happen um and so it's this possibility that's lost whereas in this film it's like it could happen like maybe maybe it will happen and even if it doesn't in some ways you know as nathan arizona says when you know he gets to be tender uh with high and ed in the in the baby's bedroom uh toward the end of the film like you know at least you have each other and like uh, yeah, you know, just the way that the film kind of uh, champions love, I guess, in in its own yeah. way toward the end is, you know, I'm a sucker for that, so I just love that. So that's my my fab five. <laughs> love um, it. Love it. 
Uh, all right. Now it's time for us to render our verdicts on this film using Ebony's brother's patented 100-star scale. As licensed cinema scientists, we have calibrated our cinemometers to evaluate this film and produce accurate numerical representations of its quality. You can find the full list of our episode and rating history in the document linked in the podcast description. All right, Ebony, how do you rate Raising Arizona? Uh, well, I have two ratings here. So on the purely, you know, grateful nostalgic front for being one of the films that um, introduced me to the the possibilities of difference uh, in cinema. And I, I don't mean to, you know, overstate it, you know, this, <laughs> uh, you know, this is not some, you know, surreal masterpiece, whatever, but just the yeah, opening my mind up yeah. uh, to, to what was possible. I give it a, a 90, give it 90 stars. Okay. On my brother's scale. All right. If I were watching this film for the first time today, yeah, uh, still loved it. Still really enjoyed it. There are things like you that I found like maybe a little bit, you know, kind of overly mannered or a little bit affected beyond what was necessary and even effective. So today's rating at an eighty. Okay. Eighty stars out of a hundred. Yeah. So this is you know it's complicated for me because. Um, like, this is an example of a film where, you know, if I'm being honest about the degree to which it worked for me, um, I, I, you know, I'm going to give it a, a certain rating. But, like, okay, here's one of the one of the difficult things I think about about applying ratings to to pretty much anything, right? Is that, like, um, you know, take a film like, say, just say Mission Impossible 5. Let's take Mission Impossible 5 Rogue Nation as an example, right? Like a, mm -hmm. a really effective kind of thriller spy movie that just like all the, you know, all the gears are, are spinning. It's it's a well-oiled machine. It's super effective. And so like like that film, if I were rating it, like, I don't know what, you know, let's, let's just say, and this is not like an official rating because I need to watch it again, but let's say that I would give that mm -hmm. film like an 80 for its effectiveness. And like, and I'm, gonna give raising arizona a lower rating than that because because mm -hmm. it doesn't succeed for me to that degree and yet like mm -hmm. i would never say that raising arizona is like a less important film i'd say it's definitely a more important film if a person were to come to me and ask well if i can only watch one of these two films like and then i never get to see the other one like which one should i watch well i'd absolutely say mm -hmm. raising arizona because it's so much more cinematically interesting it's brought you know it's more likely to broaden mm -hmm. your horizons give you so much to think about you know it's going to stay with you and yet like but i have to somehow acknowledge within the rating that it doesn't fully like as much as i may admire it it doesn't fully succeed for me on its own terms mm -hmm. so i'm giving it mm -hmm. uh, with all those caveats and i hope that that's clear to people um i'm giving it a 65 out of 100 i i'm gonna <clears throat> excuse me get on the phone uh with my brother after uh, uh, this uh, and walk him through you know <laughs> some of these issues that you've raised and i mean these are not if he's if he's <laughs> thought about this I, and maybe I, has some adjustments I, we can well, make to this maybe <laughs> that would be great i mean but i but i really feel like these are issues that are that are that critics in all fields face certainly when in my work as mm -hmm. a game critic when i had to assign a numerical score to like one or two games a week right and it's like and 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 certainly like in gaming spaces there's more of an expectation i think that oh well if the game just works well if it plays well etc then like it's good you give it like at least an mm -hmm. eight and if it's kind of busted in the controls or this or that like you give it uh, you know, a six or lower, et cetera, um, where there's so many other 
other things that go into our experience of a game, a film, you know, TV series, etc., whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there are probably games that I gave, like, a, you know, a 6, 6.5 to that I find way more interesting, uh, you mm-hmm. know, cha- kind of challenging to conventions and thought-provoking or, or whatever than games that I gave, like, 8s to because they, they like, check off the boxes and they, they do what they set out to do fairly well, but what they set out to do may not be, like, that noteworthy or interesting, you know? These are just, yeah. to me, the fascinating issues uh, uh, that surround, like, assigning any mm-hmm. any art slash media a, a numerical score yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow wow caro dropping the bomb in episode 12 that our whole like fundamental rating system yeah. offers you know these these tracks yeah. to the the unwary listener wow yeah wow yeah caro yeah uh all right well having done mm-hmm. that Having completely blown the roof off things, and as we bid Ed and I a fond farewell, it's time for you, Kara. Mm-hmm. It's time for you to tell us where the Starship Cinema Ball is headed next. All right. Well, Ebony, I have to say, you. This was uh, I. My choices here. Uh, I, it was full of various temptations so many delectable cinematic morsels you know with with the filmographies of of, again like Nicolas Cage who I mean obviously just you know whatever you think of him as an actor you know I think he always makes interesting choices right like even if he's (laughs) even if he's bad like he's doing something interesting on screen and he has been in, in a legitimately in a number of like really fascinating films so there was that whole buffet laid out before me uh the coen brothers of course of where i could have linked to you know so many films in their filmography that i have seen that i haven't seen it was a really tough choice for me but ultimately and this is not a choice made with any strategic concern i did not look to see if this is an easy link for you to uh, to billy jean it might be i don't know but i just could not resist you brought me into the orbit with with Holly Hunter's presence in this film, you brought me into the orbit of a film that I am just powerless, utterly powerless to resist. Oh, I know what we're getting. And I, I really want to talk about it with you. It's a film that really is uh, about ethics in journalism. We are going to talk about the, ro- the romantic comedy drama broadcast news. I am... So excited to talk about this with you. Broadcast news, 1987. Yeah, 1987. Raising Arizona, 1987. Yeah. Holly Hunter. Oh, just amazing. What a year for Holly Hunter, huh? Absolutely. Oh, my God. I I can't wait for this. Excellent choice. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, All right. So that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Thanks so much to Simplecast, which hosts both this podcast and our flagship show, Feminist Frequency Radio, which y'all should definitely be listening to. Thanks also to our amazing producer, Sarah Norales. And hey, thank you for listening. If you like the show, please take a second and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcast. It is super incredibly helpful in boosting our ratings and helping other folks find our show. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of Cinema Ball. Bye, folks. Let's check the scoreboard. Carolyn 3, Ebony 0.
Hey, Cinema Ballers! If you've been enjoying this weekly dose of movie mania with me and Ebony, you should check out our big sister podcast, Feminist Frequency Radio. Every Wednesday, join Anita, Ebony, and me as we unleash our irreverent and only occasionally educational feminist opinions on the hot pop culture news of the day and the media we think you should be paying attention to. You can find Feminist Frequency Radio wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And hey, if you like what you hear, sign up at d.rip slash femfreak to get early access to each episode, hilarious bonus content, and exclusive backer rewards. Tune in and find out what everyone is freaking out about.